You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and turn to someone beside you, to your left and to your right, and tell them the title of my sermon this morning, Christ in Our Crisis. Christ in Our Crisis. Well, definitely glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And please do remember some of the items that uh, Sister Eden had mentioned in the announcements, right? Again, we have that food drive that you feed me, food drive that is an an initiative that uh, we are doing as a church because, again, we want to take responsibility for our neighbors, show some love to our our, our neighbors in our community, in Mississauga specifically, and so give accordingly to that. Again, tomorrow is the summer, not tomorrow, sorry, Monday. I don't want to confuse people. I'm a little excited for it. Uh, Summer Jam Picnic is on Monday, so get excited for that. Uh, Last time I heard, uh, we're getting close to about 100 people or so coming out to this one event, and I'm sure there's still more people who haven't registered and are going to come out anyways, which is great and fine. Uh, So keep that event in prayer, please. Um, Last week, we had a workshop for evangelism, and the purpose for that was to prepare ourselves, to prepare our members in order to be able to share the gospel openly and boldly to those who are going to be attending that summer jam picnic. So please keep all of that, uh, all of that uh, initiative, that, uh, those things in order, or, or in prayer, rather, and, and uh, ask for open hearts on the summer jam, during the summer jam picnic for the gospel to be shared uh, and, and to be spoken to, right? So keep those things in prayer. Get excited again for that. I know I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm ready. I heard there's going to be some tug of war, right? Uh, I'm ready for that. Um, so everyone better bring out your A game, your running shoes, because uh, Pastor Ian is going to bring it too. So uh, with that said, with that said, we are going to get back into our Gospel of John series. Last week, we, as, as you might recall, we started, or, or actually we, we unpacked chap- the beginning parts of chapter 6 in that great miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so now we're continuing that narrative. If you remember uh, from last week, all of chapter 6 is one big narrative, right? Each scene in chapter 6 builds on top of each other, culminating to what happens at the end where the people reject Jesus and the only ones who actually stay with Jesus are his disciples. And all of that is is culminating up to that. And our scene this morning, or our passage this morning, builds on top of what's already happened. Now, remember what John's purpose is in his gospel. We we go through this every weekend, it seems, right? John chapter 20, verse 31. Everyone should have this memorized already. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John's specific purpose for his entire gospel is evangelism, so that whoever reads this gospel would come to faith and believe in Christ as the Messiah, the the Son of God, and by believing they might have life. And so everything, everything that we have read so far is for that specific purpose and and displaying who the identity of who Jesus really is, and that's including the feeding of the 5,000. Now, What we see in our passage this morning is a very specific, very explicit display of Christ's divinity to his disciples. So far, the disciples have already seen glimpses of that divinity throughout the, the beginning parts of John. They, they've been, you know, they, they were there for the healings. They were there for the, 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 the water turning into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And of course, they were there at the feeding of the 5,000. But now in this scene that we just read, in this passage that we just read, Jesus is going to display his divinity specifically, specifically to his disciples in an exclusive way, in a way that only the disciples get to see. And this is why, and this is why at the end of chapter 6, we see that the disciples stay. And it's because of this event. It's because of what happens on the water on the Sea of Galilee in our passage. Now, my hope for us this morning is to be able to relate with the disciples because as we'll see, these disciples, they go through a rough time on the waters. They go through a crisis, so to speak. And it's not just because of the storm. And as we'll see, you can, you can tell from their emotions and, and the words that they say what, is, what they were going through emotionally and mentally during this passage. And my hope for us this morning is that if we find ourselves, if anyone of us here finds ourselves in a similar situation as the disciples 
going through a crisis in life, that we would be encouraged, that we would find hope in our Savior, that we would be reminded of who Jesus is, who Christ is in our crisis. And so my hope this morning is that if that's you, if, that's, if you've been going through a season where you've been searching for God, but not finding him, or you've been struggling through whatever circumstance of life that you have found yourself in, that you would be reminded of our Savior who is in the crisis with us. So let's get into our passage, right? I'm going to be trying a little bit, I'm going to be trying something different this, this uh, sermon. I'm going to be moving around a lot. The productions team asked me to do that. Like they want me to stand here, and then they want me to stand here. I don't know why. They, they either they want me to be more charismatic or get some cardio or something like that. But So, so just, just bear with me. Please show me some grace as we try to navigate this, this uh, sermon this morning. Now, before we get into the actual text, uh, I think it's important to discuss taking narrative and making it to normative, right? Because we see this all the time in sermons and, and churches, right? The idea that where you, you take something that's a, a narrative in Scripture and you make it normative, or where you take something that's meant to be historical and then you make it into some sort of allegorical story to apply into our own lives, now, this is important because we see these two extremes in churches today, right, in sermons today, and, and we'll get to that. But in case you don't know what I'm talking about here, narrative to normative is making sort of the narrative stories of Scripture and, and, and turning it into some sort of equation, right? And, you know, if you do this, then God will do this. It's like, you know, in, at the end of the book of Joshua, Caleb, he claimed his mountain, and then, and then God gave him his mountain. So therefore, if I claim that new house, guess what? God's going to give me that house, right? It doesn't work that way. Or, or maybe, you know, the same way that, that, that God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Guess what? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fireproof now. Doesn't work that way, right? Please don't try that at home, kids. Uh, in, in the same sense, when you take something historical and make something allegorical, which is often the case that preachers do, you get the sense where, where something that's meant to be a narrative, a historical narrative, and, and you might know that the Bible is composed of s- certain, uh, uh, or certain types of writings, right? There's writings, there's poetry, there's laws, there's historical documents, right? And so when you take something historical, a historical narrative, and turn it into an allegory to sort of apply it to your lives, like say, I don't know, you know, it's the same way that God helped David defeat his giants, God will help me defeat my giants, and you use giants as a metaphor, as an allegory to some school debt or some problem that you're facing in this life, right? I think it's, it's, there, there's some issues with that. There's some dangers to that. And as we see, as I mentioned, a lot of churches go either or, right? Some churches say that you can't do that whatsoever, right? And then some churches will say, well, you can only... You, well, actually, they take it to the next level. They take it to the extreme and, and, even, and, and say that everything's an allegory. You can relate to everything. You can be like Jesus and have his authority. You can be like God and, and, and produce something and speak something into existence, for example, and taking it very literal, the things of Scripture. Now, that's not the case, and I think we need to find a middle ground whenever we come to an interpretation of narratives or any parts of Scripture. Now, what Paul says about this in, in 1 Corinthians, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. This is when he's talking about the stories of the Israelites in the wilderness and the struggles and the idolatry that they went through in the wilderness. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. He says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Then he says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So in one sense, the Bible says it's okay. It's okay to look at the narratives of Scripture, of the Old Testament, of the patriarchs, and take it as an example for us, a cautionary tale, instruction of how we should live, or what even, better yet, what we shouldn't do. Now, where we get into trouble in terms of our interpretation and in terms of our, our reading or even our applying biblical narrative is when we make ourselves the hero of the story, right? When we make ourselves the hero of the story, it's like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to be like David and I'm going to conquer my giants, right? Or I'm going to be like Daniel and I'm going to, you know, say no to the, my, my employer and, and, you know, even if I get tossed into the lion's den, I will survive, 
right? Or I'll be like Moses and, and be like him in how he led the people in, in the wilderness. We often take the highlights or the blessings or the, the promises that these patriarchs of the Bible were, were, were given and we try to apply it to ourselves. It's like we want what they have. But the reality is we're not the hero of the story, right? We're never the hero of the story. Let me ask you a question. Who's, who's the hero of the Bible? Jesus, exactly. I'm glad this is a Christian church and everyone knows the answer to this question. The, the, the hero of the story is Jesus. This entire book, this entire narrative of Scripture is all about God's power, God's authority, His ability to save His people. It's not about us. If anything, where we relate, where we come into the story and where we can identify with the patriarchs is not in their, not in their feats, but in their flaws, Right? You're, you're, listen, you're not David in him you know, conquering his giant. You're, you're David when he lusted after Bathsheba. Right? You're, you're not the Israelites when, when you know, they, they, they crossed the Red Sea and they entered into the promised land. No, you're, you're the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for how many years and committing idolatry before God. That's who we are. Again, as I said before in the past, we're more like the villains of the story, right? We're the ones who's always disobeying God. We're the, we're the ones always running away from God, right? We're not the hero of the stories. And that's why Paul says in that First Corinthians passage that, that, that Scripture is meant to be uh, an example to us. Instruction, a cautionary tale of what we should not do, right? We're, how, that we are to learn from the patriarchs and their mistakes, now, what is, what is constant, what is normative, so to speak, in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, is that God is constant, that God doesn't change, that He is the hero of the story, that He is very much capable, mighty to save, that He's able to, to save His people, to work His purposes and His will. That's what is normative in Scripture. That's what you can rely on. And what's, what's interesting is that, as, as mentioned, all of Scripture is God enacting His will. It's Him being faithful to His will and purposes. There's a great verse that everyone likes to quote, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I'm sure we've all said it before, and I know I've probably taken it out of context at some point, but if you, you know that's right. If we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And oftentimes we take that verse and think, oh man, you know, this verse is about me. You know, we put ourselves in the middle of that verse again and say, man, God's going to be faithful to me. Even if I'm faithless, even if I commit sin, if I, if I run away, God's going to be faithful to me. But that's not what that verse is saying. Because the verse right before that says, if you deny Christ, Christ will deny you. There's no faithfulness there, right? But what, what God is saying here is that if we are faithless, even faithless to his will and purposes, he will remain faithful to it because he cannot deny his purposes. He cannot deny his will. And so that's the narrative of all of Scripture is even in, our, even in humanity's sinfulness, even in, the, even in humanity's unfaithfulness to God, God is still working everything for His glory and our good. It's still Him working in His sovereign will, His, his purposes to, to bring Christ into the earth and to bring salvation to us. So listen, whenever we're talking about narratives and, and all these things, listen, don't put your hope, your faith in the narrative. Don't put your hope and faith in the narrative. Put your hope and faith in the God of the narrative. Put your hope and faith in, in listen, the narrative is meant to point you to the author. And that's the point. These stories in the Bible is meant to point you to who God is, his faithfulness to his people, his power to save, his, his authority, his, his, his ability to take even our mistakes, even our flaws, even our sins, and bring it about for his glory and our ultimate good. This, that, that's what that's that's our that's the point about narrative. North. Now, when it comes to historical uh, turning or taking a historical narrative and turning it into some sort of allegory, well, again, you know, David and Goliath is not an allegory about how you can conquer the, the, the giants of your life in terms of you know your debt or your sin or your anxiety or your fears or whatever else you might call your giants. It's it's it's, it's actually in, quite interesting how oftentimes we like to take the highlights of the patriarchs and apply it to our lives. How about, how about the sinfulness, right? How about the low points of the patriarchs? We never, go, we never take the, the, the sin that, that David had with Bathsheba and say, oh, that's an allegory for my life, right? Hopefully not, right? But nonetheless, it, it seems, again, that we always go for the highlights, the, the blessings, the promises, right? It's interesting, like, 
we, I think we do this often when we're naming, naming our, our, our kids. I, I know me and Faye, we went through this, this, this uh, season when we, when we were thinking about names for our kids. Like, what do we call our kids, right? I wanted to call my, I, initially, I wanted to call my, my son Judah Spurgeon, right? Because, you know, see, Spurgeon, like, that's an amazing name. And then my wife said, no, he's going to be mocked and ridiculed at school. I don't get it, right? These pagans. Anyways, but... Uh, but the, the, the great thing is, it's interesting because I felt the same way growing up with my, with my parents, right? My parents, my middle name, if you didn't know, is David, is David. And so my parents were always like growing up, uh, you know, you're going to be like David, you're going to have a heart for worship, and you know, you're going to be, you know, conquering giants and all this stuff for the Lord. I'm like, yes, amen. And I start reading the Bible, like, David wasn't a great guy. He commits murder, he commits adultery. Like, what's my parents trying to tell me? Like, you know? So all of that to say, I, I, think, I think we cannot take the historical narratives and make it an allegory or a metaphor for our, or our own lives, as, as if we're desiring those things that these patriarchs said. Listen, God's purposes and his will for your life is different from his purposes and will for David. It's different from his will and purposes for, for Daniel, for Moses, all of it, all those patriarchs. His plans and purposes for your life is unique to your story, is unique to, in, the, in the narrative that he is, is weaving in your story. So, and, and I get it, right? I get it. it, it we, we often do this because we want to find some sort of hope, some sort of, some sort of comfort in Scripture from the stories of the patriarchs. Right? We want to have that victory that, that David had. We want to have that, that, that victory that, that Daniel had. And, and I get that, I get that. But listen, there are other places in Scripture that offer that same hope that same assurance, that same victory, that same joy as these, other, uh, as these patriarchs. So please, again, don't, don't, don't take these, these uh, narratives and try to fit into your life story and try to be at the center of that as well. Again, you're not David, you're not one of the patriarchs. Now, I bring all of this up because <laughs> this morning as we unpack the story of the disciples and them being in the boat and Jesus walking on the water, we're going to be doing similar. We're going to be doing something similar to what I just talked about, but I don't want it to be a sort of a precedence for us to start doing this on a regular basis. But and again, what we see in our passage is not allegorical, right? This wasn't a metaphorical storm that these disciples were experiencing. I mean, aside from the literal storm that they were experiencing, they were going through a lot of emotions. They were going through a lot of fear as well that I believe that we can relate to. And it's in that context, in that crisis. We see Jesus come in. We see more of who Jesus is in that crisis. Again, we get to know who Christ is in that crisis. Uh, now, before, get, we, we, before we, we come to that point, right, again, let's, take a, let's unpack a little bit of what the disciples are going through in this moment, right, in, this, in, our, in our passage. First and foremost, so, so that we sort of get a better understanding or, or the backdrop in which Christ enters in, that Christ comes walking on the water. First and foremost, what is this crisis that the, the disciples were going through? Well, first and foremost, I said that a couple times, not weird. Uh, the disciples were directionless. The disciples were directionless. If you recall our passage, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. In the, as we'll see in a couple of uh, moments here, the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, record how the disciples were in the water, sailing in, in the stormy water up until between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's when Jesus came to them. So they were directionless. Imagine you were in a boat in the middle of the sea, and it was dark, it was nighttime, there's, storm, there's a storm, wind blowing, all that stuff. I would imagine you'd be directionless. You'd probably lose sight of where the ground is, where it sways to shore, all of these things. That's where the, the, the disciples were. I imagine they felt a little stuck, didn't they? Because as, we, as we'll read in our passage, right, they, they've been rowing and rowing for hours and not getting anywhere. I imagine they would feel stuck. Now, in addition to that, they, they, they were distressed. Right? Our passage says, and even in the other Gospels, it says that they were terrified. They were fighting for their lives. So you, you can imagine what that distress looks like. There's stress, anxiety. There's probably regret. Like, what am I doing here? Why did I get into this boat? Right? There's probably sorrow. They, they thought that their lives were going to be taken. And so, you know, like, this is the end of the road. Right? I never got to say goodbye to my family. I never got to, you know, do the things I want to do. There's probably a lot of sorrow. So stress, anxiety, sorrow, regret. These disciples were in distress. In addition to that, physically speaking, these disciples were drained. 
They were drained. I, I mean, again, they were row, rowing for all throughout the night in the storm, and it says that they weren't getting anywhere. So you can imagine they, they'd, they'd be exhausted, right? Man, I, I work up a sweat just preaching you know, for 30 minutes up here. I imagine how it's going to be, you know, rowing a boat for how many hours on the sea? It's okay. I wear deodorant, so it's, it's fine. It's uh, okay. too much information. I know. I get it. Uh, but so, so here, here were these, 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 these exhausted, drained disciples still in the middle of the ocean or middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they were stuck. They were drained, exhausted, right? In addition, they were defenseless. Imagine being on the middle of the ocean, right, and and middle of the sea and not being able to go anywhere, and the only thing that's keeping you afloat is the boat. They were defenseless. And of course, as we already mentioned, I'm sure they all feared of dying. They were at death's door. They're, in their mind, they're about to die. So they're, 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 this is their crisis, okay? They were directionless. They were distressed. They were drained. They were defenseless. They were at death's door. Can anyone, have, can anyone relate to these things? Can anyone have, does that, has anyone gone through a crisis similar to what these disciples have gone through, maybe have felt these things at some point in your life? I know I, I can definitely relate to being drained, being exhausted at times, and I can definitely relate to being directionless at times. And again, this wasn't some, this wasn't some allegory or a metaphorical storm that they were in. They were in a literal crisis, physically, emotionally, mentally. Yet it's in this crisis that we are reminded of who Christ is. The reminder, it's, it's the, in this crisis that we are reminded of who what the identity of Christ is in, even in our own issues and circumstances and problems. Now, something to point out, what I guess elevated this crisis for the disciples is that even after seeing everything that Jesus had done, there were still unbelievers. Mark chapter 6 says in verse 51, and they were utterly astounded. This is afterwards, right? This is the, the Mark account of what happens after Jesus comes into the boat. It says, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. These disciples have traveled with Jesus for how many months now and seen him do all these miracles? Have they, they have heard the conversations that Jesus has had with the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, about how he's a son of God. They were there just moments ago when Jesus fed the 5,000 people, and yet they were still, their hearts were still hardened in unbelief. They saw the miracles, but yet they didn't know who the Messiah was. And this is why, this is why Jesus comes in and he reveals himself to them. This is why this moment had to take place. So let's go into our passage. Everyone say, jump for me, please. So it says in our passage, right? When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. It's interesting because in the other Gospels, it talks about how it's Jesus who tells the disciples to go into the boat and go ahead of him, right? Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples Get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, in, in, in Bethsaida, rather. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him. Now, if I were the disciples, if we were the disciples, that should tell us something. But like the disciples, again, we're, we're sort of, we're, we're the ones with a hardened heart, right? But this should tell us something. If Jesus is the one that told them to get in the boat, that should have told them that he had a purpose, a reason as to why they were going out to the sea, a reason as to why they were going into a sea, probably knowing that there's a storm on the way. They should have known that there, that there was a purpose as to why Christ was sending them out. And I think this is the reminder to us this morning. Listen, God will not tell us to do something for no reason, Right? God will not send us out to a storm, to a trial, to a responsibility without a purpose or a reason for it. But remember, the disciples, they lacked faith. So even after knowing that Jesus is the one who sent them out, the same Jesus who just performed this miracle of feeding the 5,000, who created loaves and fishes out of nothing, 
That same Jesus is the one that told them to go out into the stormy waters. I think that's oftentimes like us. When God opens a door, when he gives us a blessing or a new responsibility, when he opens up a relationship for us, yet the slightest difficulty comes along, the slightest problem comes along in that that, that blessing or whatever it is, next thing you know, we're, we're in the middle of a crisis. We don't know what's going on. Like, how did we get here? We're in distress. We're losing faith. And yet we forget that it's God who brought us there. It's God who sent us there. If God sent you there, listen, if God sent you there, he will get you there. If, if God brought you there, he will preserve you until you, uh, when you are there, in the midst of that storm, and in the midst of that whatever it is. If God led you there, he will provide for you there. Right? Here, let me ask you a question, church, right? Do you think God miscalculates? Do you think God makes mistakes? It's like you think, you know, like uh, it says later on that Jesus sees the disciples and they're rowing out in the sea and they're stuck in the middle of the, this, this stormy weather. And, and you think Jesus was like, oh man, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't have told them to go off on their own. <sighs> you know, my bad, guys, sorry. I don't think Jesus ever says my bad, right? Because he was never bad. But like, God doesn't miscalculate. He doesn't miscalculate here in the story and he doesn't miscalculate in your life. Everything in your life, even the problems in your life, you're there for a reason. It's there for a purpose that God has for your life. Oftentimes, it's our lack of faith that tells us otherwise, right? Oftentimes, it's our lack of faith that thinks that, hey, you know, maybe God made a mistake by sending me into this workplace. Maybe it's God who made a mistake when he blessed this relationship. But it's not. It's oftentimes how we perceive the storm. It's oftentimes how, how we perceive and, and deal with whatever issues and crises that we have in our lives. So the disciples are in this storm. It says, it's interesting, as I, as I already mentioned, that in Mark chapter 6, in Mark's gospel, in his account, Mark chapter 6, verse 40, 48, it says, and he saw that they were making, this is talking about Jesus, he saw that they were making headway painfully, where the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's the 3 a.m. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. I love that. In the middle of this storm, in the middle of the night, with the winds and the waves blowing, Jesus saw them. Where was Jesus, by the way? He was up on the mountain, right? Yet Jesus saw them. In the middle of all of that, and this is a reminder for us. This is our first reminder in, in, in our crisis, in, in, in the midst of our, our problems and our circumstances. Listen to this, right? Christ sees your circumstance. Christ sees your circumstance. Listen, Jesus is never absent in your life. Jesus is never absent in your life. And I think this is often where, where we need to be careful with our feelings because our feelings often tells us otherwise. When we don't feel his presence, when we feel like we're directionless, when we feel like we're hopeless, we feel like Jesus is not there. We feel like God has abandoned us, that he's left us. And this is where our feelings and our faith need to, need to wage war. Our feelings and our faith need to contrast each other because, listen, what does the Bible say faith is? Faith says, uh, the faith defined by scripture is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. It's not what you feel. It's not what's in front of you. It's not anything tangible or physical. See, that's the dangers of sort of this emotionalism in churches today, right? You get conditioned into thinking, hey, guess what? You know, this is the presence of God when you're, you're worshiping at church and you feel that ethereal feeling, you get that tingly feeling on your spine and, you know, that's the presence of God. How do you feel that in the midst of a crisis, how do you feel that when you're, when you're struggling in sickness, when you see a loved one in the hospital, when you lose your job? How do you feel that tingly feeling? The reality is what we feel is not always what is the reality of our faith. Paul says this about Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4. He says, Romans chapter 4 verse 18 says, In hope he believed against hope. 
that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations. And what that passage is saying, what Paul is saying, is that he didn't take into consideration the fact that he was old already. And how, how, how Sarah was, was past bearing child. But he clung on to the hope and promise of God. That's faith. It's not looking at your circumstances. It's not looking at your physical ability. It's not looking at your, your, your inability or your, 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 your emotional state or your mental state. It is believing Believing in God and His promises. See, here's, here's the truth, right? Here's, here's the sort of the anchor of what we need to stand on as we go through crisis and storms in our life. Christ sees your circumstance. When, you're, when, when, when your feelings and your emotions tell you otherwise, remember, Christ sees your circumstances, even if you don't feel it. And, and, and listen, not only does he see it, but he is in it with you. He's in it with you. I, this is one of my favorite psalms, right? One, psalm 139. I love this psalm. Listen to these words. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just use this to, to, to minister to your heart this morning. Psalm 139, verse 7 to 12. Listen. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I, send, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall come over me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. I love this. I love what verse 11 says, right? He, he says, right, even if, if, even if I say to myself, even if I'm fully convinced that I'm done for, that the darkness has come and taken me, or if the darkness has me, his resolve, his faith says, even the darkness is light to God. Even God can see him in the darkness. Listen. There in your, in your unbelief, in your sorrow, in your pain, in your regrets of life, in the consequences of your sin, God is there. He is with you there. Even if, he, even if you don't feel it, he's there. Christ sees your circumstance. Moving on in our passage, uh, verse 19 when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I love this. I find this actually quite funny, right? They're in the middle of this, this stormy weather, and, and, and you know, they're about to die. They're distressed. They're, they're crying out probably for help, all this stuff. And then Jesus, the master, the, the Messiah, comes walking on the water, and it says they were frightened, right? At least the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, says they thought he was a ghost, but here, John just says, we were scared even when we saw Jesus, right? I love that. But I think the point of this, the point of including this, this whole miracle of Jesus walking on the water is to remind us of, listen to this, Christ, that Christ is sovereign over creation. Christ is sovereign over creation. This is the miracle of him walking on the water, right? Like who's ever done that before? Right? It shows, again, Christ's divinity, his power. It's interesting, uh, John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur, he says that, that this is Jesus defying gravity. Defying gravity. Well, unfortunately, I have to respectfully disagree with Pastor John MacArthur because he doesn't have the extensive knowledge of comic book trivia as I do. And I don't believe this is him defying gravity. This, I believe, is matter manipulation, Right? Jesus is walking on liquid, on water, which, is, which you're supposed to sink in, but he's making it so that he can walk on it, right? That's not him flying. That's him walking on what shouldn't 
work that he shouldn't be able to walk on. Right? Not, and not only that, but again, as we just read in Mark, Jesus sees him all the way from uh, the mountaintop. Right? That means he could, he has, Jesus has night vision. Right? That's awesome. Right? He has supervision. Like he's probably on a mountaintop, mountaintop and like he has a zoom-in feature. Right? Like the new iPhones in his eyes. Right? And could see the, 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 the disciples on the sea. Again, 3 a.m., 6 a.m., in the middle of the night. As we just read, right? Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as a day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, there's another miracle that we see in our passage that maybe you missed out, right? Verse 21, it says, They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's spatial manipulation, right? That's literally Jesus like, I'm in the boat now, then boom, we're on the shore now. It's like, what? What happened here? So Jesus is displaying all this power. He's displaying all his glory. He's displaying his divinity to his disciples. He wants to show his disciples, hey, look, this is who you're following. This is who your Savior is. Now, you know, I'm playing a bit with, with all these things, but that's what we see in Scripture. But, you know, however way the miracle worked, Jesus was demonstrating his control over nature itself. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And listen to this. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. So it's not a far stretch to think that Jesus is manipulating the, the atoms or the, the molecules of the water that he's walking on so that he can walk on it. All things in him hold together. And here's the lesson for us, right? The same God who is sovereign over the winds and the waves is sovereign over your life. The same God who is who's sovereign over the molecules and the matter and space and time itself is sovereign over your life. The disciples didn't get it, right, because of their unbelief. The very thing that they feared, right, that the storm, the, the, the death itself, the, the feeling of directionless, being left in the dark, all of that stuff, Jesus literally just conquered by showing up right before their eyes. That's the reality of who our king is. He is sovereign over creation. And I want to add this, right? Because maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's great and all, but I'm living in the consequences of my sin. I'm living in the, my, the consequences of my poor decisions in life. Listen, Christ is sovereign over that as well. Christ is sovereign over that as well. John's perspective, right? I love John's perspective because, again, it doesn't say that, that Jesus told them to go out sailing in the middle of the storm. It, it makes it seem as if it was the disciples' uh, initiative, it was the disciples' idea to go rowing out into the storm. And you can imagine, right? There was, there was only a handful of them in that boat who were actually trained fishermen, who knew how to sail, and so you can imagine some of these disciples are on this boat. Some of them are tax collectors. Some of them are just Bible nerds, right? They're in this boat and they're caught in the storm. The fishermen are all probably all like, no, we can do this, guys. We've done this before, right? We've managed this, the, the, the sea before. And yet they're stuck in this wave. So it's like mistakes were made, right? Regrets. Listen, Jesus was sovereign over that, those mistakes, same way that he is sovereign over you. You know, how, you know what the greatest example of this is in our lives, in humanity? It's death itself. Death is the consequence of our sin, our sinful nature, right? For the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence of it. And who, is, who, who, who mastered death? Jesus, who had victory over death, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's encouragement. That's a reminder for us this morning. Listen, if you are living in the consequences of your sin and your bad choices and your regrets, listen, God is sovereign over that as well. Remember the story of, J- jo- of Joseph, right, who was sold into slavery, who was accused of, of misconduct, was sent to prison, forgotten in prison, and then finally elevated to a place under the Pharaoh. And then when he meets up with his brothers again, what was it he said, right? What you meant for evil, God determined for good. God can take even our mistakes, even our our bad decisions, our bad choices, and work it out for his glory and our good. Now, before we move on, notice that John's account doesn't record Peter walking on the water, right? Read about that in Matthew instead, but this one... Peter is not walking on the water because why? Again, because John's focus is on Christ. His focus is on evangelistic purpose. It doesn't mean that it contradicts the accounts of Peter walking on water. The two could have happened, uh, similarly happened, right? If I said, well, you know, me and my wife were at the mall yesterday, you'd be like, well, where are the kids? Well, the kids were with us, of course, right? We couldn't find a babysitter or whatever. But the idea, just that because I leave that information out, it doesn't mean that it's untrue if I said afterwards, oh, the kids and I were at the mall, right? So hopefully that makes sense to you in that sense. Now, what's a great reminder, even as, as our time comes to a close here, and I think what ties it all together for these disciples and why our passage later on says that they were glad to receive Jesus into the boat is this reminder that Christ is sufficient in our crisis. Christ is sufficient in the crisis, just as we sang today. It's interesting that John's account doesn't say, uh, unlike the, the other Gospels, it doesn't say that the storm ceased once Jesus got into the boat. In Mark chapter 6, verse 51, it says, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. It stopped right there on the spot, Right? In Matthew chapter 14, verse 32, it says this thing, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. But John leaves that out. Remember, look at verse 21 with me. It says, and they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. It doesn't say that the storm stops, except it just says that they were glad to receive Jesus. Listen, if the the disciples were, were right in doing anything, it's this right here. They knew where their security was. They knew that once Jesus got into the boat, it didn't matter if the storm stopped or not. If they continued to be in the middle of the sea, that's where their security was. Their assurance was the fact that Jesus was in the boat with them. They were glad to receive him. You know, we, we, we've mentioned before, and, and we talk about peace, right? Peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of Christ in our problems. It's not, it's not, it's not, you know, oh, you know, God, you know, give me peace. And we think, oh, it's God going to remove all these problems. He's going to remove your your debt. He's going to remove all these circumstances in your life so that you can finally think clear and have a moment of peace. That's not it. That's not biblical peace. Peace, again, is the presence of Christ in our problems. Now, here's where where it gets really personal. And I love this. As I was studying this uh, in God's word, uh, this past week, this is, this is what stood out to me the most and, and, and absolutely what ties it down to the disciples and why at the end of chapter 6, they stick with Christ rather than, than abandoning him as everybody else does at the end of the chapter. Now, listen to this. I love this. In verse, verse 20, right? And this is why Christ is sufficient in our crisis. It says in verse 20, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Now, this is pretty consistent throughout all the other Gospels as well. This is exactly what Jesus says when he gets onto the boat. He says, take heart. In Matthew, in Matthew and Mark, he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this phrasing, it is I, is a really poor translation of what Jesus is saying here. Right? In the original Greek, is ego I me. Ego I me. It's a poor translation because everywhere else in the Gospel of John, even a couple of passages right after this, this is better translated to as I am. I am. The same words that Jesus invokes later on when he says, I am the bread of life. The same words that Jesus invokes later on when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The same 
words that he invokes in front of the, 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 the Jewish people where he says, before Abraham was I am, he's invoking the name of God in the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton. He who was and who is and is to come. Jesus is saying, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. That alone was sufficient for the disciples to take heart, to receive him gladly. Because once Jesus came into the boat and he identified himself as the great I am, the same I am who split the waters of the Red Sea, so the Israelites could walk through the same, the same I am who, who met with Moses at the burning bush. The same I am who provided for the Israelites in the wilderness as they wandered for years. Manna from heaven, curing, cure, curing from, from poisonous snakes. That same I am was the one who was getting into the boat with them. And that's the same I am who is with us in our storms, in our crisis. Church, that should be sufficient. You know, as we were talking about earlier, the narrative of Scripture doesn't change when it comes to God. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the great I am. He is the one who declares an end from the beginning. And he is the one who is with us through the crisis. That's who our Jesus is. And so, church, as we come to a close here, as we wrap things up here, that's the invitation for us this morning. If you are going through something in this life that is a crisis, where you feel defeated, where you feel exhausted in the rowing, in the, in the struggle, in the striving of life, where you feel disillusioned even in your faith, understand that that Jesus, the great I am, is with you in that storm, is with you in that crisis. The invitation this morning is to, remind, to, to remember that Christ sees your circumstance. Whatever it is that you're going through, the Bible specifically says that God is near to the brokenhearted. And so whatever, what has, whatever has broken your heart, whatever it is that you have grieved for, whatever it is that you have shed your tears about, God sees it and he knows He's in it with you. And that same God who is sovereign over creation, who commands the wind and the waves, he commands every aspect of your life. There's a reason for your storm. There's a reason for your crisis. God does not make a mistake. He has you there for a reason. And again, Christ is sufficient in the crisis. Because Jesus is the great I am the one who satisfies our needs, the one who can truly satisfy our soul's deepest longings for love and relationship, for hope and truth. He is the great I am, the unchanging one. He who was and is and is to come. That's who is in the storm with us. And listen, if you are an unbeliever and you're hearing all of this and you're saying, I want that, I want that. I, I want that Jesus to be in the boat with me. Listen, it starts, it, starts by, it starts at repentance. It's acknowledging that, listen, the reason why Jesus is not in the boat with us in the first place is because of our sin, because of our unbelief, because of the things that we have tried to do on our own, because we have tried to, try to struggle and work for our own salvation, because we have tried to manage things on our own. It's our pride. So the invitation is to humble yourself, to repent, to ask for the mercies of God, and to invite Christ to your life. Invite the great I am into your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know exactly where every single person's heart is at this moment. You know exactly where the Holy Spirit has convicted, where the Holy Spirit has brought people to their knees. And you know, God, where the hurts are, where, where the heartbreak is in everyone's life is this morning. You know exactly the crisis that everyone is going through. And I pray, Father, that 
even in this moment, that you would help our unbelief. So that even if, if we don't feel your presence, even if, if we don't feel like you're, you're moving in our lives, that we would know it, we would believe it, God. Help our unbelief. So that if there's anyone here that is hopeless right now, who, who feels like they have been going around in circles in the, in the storms of life, who have been struggling in sin, who have been weighed down in regrets, the decisions that they've, been, that they've made, I pray that this day would be a day of hope a day of illumination, a day of revelation of your presence in the midst of those storms, your presence in the midst of their crisis. Help us, O Lord, because you know how fickle our hearts are and how we try to do things on our own or how we try to go to other places for satisfaction, for answers, for rest. Yet we forget about the Savior who is already in the boat with us. Oh Lord, help our unbelief. I pray, help us, God, to turn to you this morning. Turn to you even with all, all our sin, all our insecurities, even with all our failures and our flaws, help us to turn to you. The only one who can remedy, the only one who can forgive our sins, the only one who can save us, O oh Lord, even from our bad decisions, O oh Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to come to you. I pray in the sacred time for the heart that has yet to put their faith in you, that they would do so today, Lord they would come come to know to taste and see that the Lord is good that the goodness of our Lord is in you our Savior Jesus Christ that you are our living hope that you are our security you are our treasure you are our anchor in the midst of whatever life brings our way Pray that hope would reign this morning. I pray, God, that your grace would overflow into every single person who is hearing my voice this morning. And that, God, we would leave this place emboldened to trust in you, to, to put our faith in you in whatever it is that we have to face outside of these doors. Thank you, Lord, for your word that has gone forth. We praise your name, our dear King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.